Hello, everyone. My name is Yifang. Welcome to Watching Silent Films podcast. And today with me are my co-hosts Lily and Bob. Hello. Hello. And it's around Thanksgiving here, so I'll say Happy Thanksgiving for those who are in America, who is celebrating or had celebrated, I guess, at the time of this recording. And uh, so, um, the today's feature podcast review will be for. The 1922 Robin Hood by Douglas Fairbanks. I think the copyright name, they actually like put his name into the f- motion picture for paperwork purposes. Douglas Fairbanks, Robin Hood, or Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood. So that's the actual, at least when it was still not in public domain or it was not, hasn't come out into public domain yet. But anyways... Um, that's the feature we were going to do and the structure of our podcast typically comes with just a quick intro all around and also uh, what we've seen lately if, if we have had time to watch anything and then we'll dive right in and as with uh, most of the podcast so far we've not really had any spoiler walls or blinds because we figure most of these movies are either more than 100 years or at least coming up on that we figured if you haven't had time to watch that <laughs> And plus, we're trying to entice people, too, uh, to try to get into it. So regardless of that, I think it's the experience of watching these films that is more important than just whether or not there's plot points. Although there are certain movies I think we should do that with down the road. There are certain uh, silent films where, where they do have plot twists, as we've seen, especially the uh, the German expressionistic ones. Hmm. Those would be interesting to, to have spoiler walls on, I call it. But anywho, um, let's get right into so what we've seen lately. Um, I haven't seen much myself, um, except that I've, for you know, researching this, I've I've seen some of the uh, early early uh, days of the or clips I think from um, Douglas Fairbanks' early works. It's quite interesting, like The Lamb, one of his first. If not the first, pretty sure it's the first role, 1915. That was interesting. That was directed by, I think, D.W. Griffith. I had to double check on that. What was it called? Uh, the Lamb. The Lamb. <laughs> That's a pretty well-known, at least in the silent film history, uh, film in 1915. Uh, it's about less than an hour or so. And, um, mm. yeah, it's the early days of, you know, of silent films, <laughs> so but mm. but he was in it and uh, directed by D.W. Griffith. Mm. You guys had any chance to visit anything in the classic realm? And usually, I define that by prior to pre Star Wars, nineteen seventy-seven. Not this week. Oh, cool. No, same. Not this week. I watched a short interview on, you know, a woman who was in a cult, but that's, you know, that's more modern. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't count. <laughs> no it's actually quite popular in the silent film era. The, uh, people's, not just America, but kind of the global fascination with that. Because um, uh, I think I referenced this before in prior podcasts. I don't think, Bob, you were on yet, but. But have you seen the movie uh, The Illusionist with um, Edward Norton? Yes. Oh, it's fantastic. Exactly. So in that film, um, I don't think it's a spoiler for that film, but the, in the movie itself, they're they're using projection to create the illusion of a holographic type 
a ghost. Like they're trying to trick people mm. into thinking that there's a presence right. of a ghost because of the cult, right? So it's an illusion, obviously, mm. because they're magicians. That's the nature of the movie. The movie's about a magician trying to win the woman back or something like that's kind of the gist of the movie but within that it, it's kind of the i think it came out around the same time as um the christopher nolan movie what was that called the prestige right? prestige yeah they they were right they were uh contemporary movies yeah yeah they were it, like it, two sides of the same coin almost it, yeah exactly there should be a name for that when uh because it always happens yes there is they, two or three movies will come out with the same almost the same plot yeah there is a name for it. I forgot what it is now. Something like twin effect or something like that. There's, yeah. there, they, they've done an analysis of that. It was quite fascinating. Copycats. They, they actually, <laughs> the, the, they develop it kind of unbeknownst to each other. They just happen to release it. They happen the to, year. yeah. You it's wonder, really weird. It, it seems unlikely, but yeah, because it happens so many times. And certainly, uh, the silent film era was no stranger to to any of those. It mm. happened quite common therein as well. It's a, a very strange phenomenon mm. over time. But uh, I remember reading too. You know, scripts would get stolen all the time, and then they oh, just yeah, copy right. each other's work. Uh, That's yeah. what it seems more likely to me. Yeah, that and, someone hears the rumor of this thing being done by another studio and says, "Oh, well, we can do that." Yeah, mm. <laughs> that's certainly a possibility. Uh, but anyways, what was I going to illusionist? Was that within the illusionist? Uh, you could it it really to me when you watch it it really opens up it's really fascinating to look at sort of how they look at that turn of the century history like the people's fascination with the magic but also with the occult like a lot of people they're watching magic even though it's like sort of modernistic and people are quote unquote enlightened they have more science now than before but there's still, I think, this fascination from the audience perspective to embrace what's in the cults. You know what I mean? Like supernatural, yep. something like that where they're not quite sure if it is happening or not. Like they're just freaked out by it, you know? And I think we still have that some of that today, but at least certainly in that era of time. Uh, it, it, that's a good one, really, because it, it does play into many, many of mm. the films, including like the Nosferatu, certainly the ones you've seen. Oh yeah, with all the cult symbols and yeah, the, man, the people. Yeah. I mean, fortunately, don't remember their names now. Yeah. But yeah, they were occultists, and that's there's symbols in the movie, and you, know, you dig deep, and you're gonna find some stuff. Yeah, but the point is, people are just fascinated with that because motion picture. Um, there's been just uh, critiques of it, even uh, the the people who are contemporaries of when the the film, the silent film came out, they're uh, figuring how how the motion picture could be that even though they might sort of understand what the science is, they can sometimes point to it saying, wow, this is like magic, like watching movies, recording and playing it back as itself, some sort of illusion itself, like magic, you know what I mean? Hmm. And sometimes people tie it to occults and stuff like that, that watching <laughs> movies is like super, like, you know. But again, that, that's the sign of the times of that era of time. But anyways, it's just a little sidetrack. Witchcraft! Burn them! <laughs> exactly like Haxon, right? <laughs> Oh. I was thinking Monty Python, but or that. <laughs> I, I bet you, if they they probably seen some of those early silence, they probably oh, were sure. were referencing a lot of those old, older uh, com- comedic bits. But um, I'm sure. With that being said, let's uh, transition right into the feature. Um, Robin Hood, 1922. Um, 
what are your favorite scenes from the film or if you like you know what what it uh do you know did you guys let's start with this did you guys know the robin story just the original work itself i didn't research this so i'm actually don't robin know. hood is one of my two favorite fictional characters Peter Pan and Robin Hood are my two favorite fictional So characters. that must mean that you know a lot about it, right? Absolutely. <laughs> which, is so why, tell us... which is why this is one of the silent films I've seen multiple times. Perfect. So can you regale us with uh, what the con- context is then? Like who wrote it or is it originally was a, a book, I imagine? Well, work? the film credits I'm not as, as much familiar with. I mean, the right. story, obviously, I am. Um, it, it's folklore. It's English folklore. Right. Originally. Right. It was not a, mm-hmm. right. It wasn't taken from an original book or anything like that. Um, basically, the, the 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 king of England um, goes off to the Crusades, and the Earl of Huntington. Um, there are various tellings of why. I mean, he supposedly went to the he went off to the Crusades with Richard, and uh, had had to come home for some reason. Um, basically. That's I like I like this telling, frankly, of uh, why he would come home. But um, that has a number of different reasons for that. But he gets home, finds out that Prince John is uh, creating, uh, is bleeding the country dry, and is a scourge to the people, and sets out to right the wrongs of. Prince John to compensate, and well, eventually. What you're telling us is more folklore, but not history. History, right? Or it's the a history mixture of the both. film itself—that I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I didn't mean the history of the film, but I mean the history of the actual story of Robin Hood, if that makes sense. So Robin Hood, right, is potentially may have been a historic figure. But over time, has had uh, people mythologizing, right? Over time, mm. correct. So potentially, he was some sort of. I think what's his name? Uh, Ridley Scott did a take on him in a couple of years ago or some some time ago. Uh, yeah, uh, mentioned that. Um, right. So another that, one just came out too. Sorry, I, it was with Taron Edgerton and I think Jamie Fox. Something oh, yeah. along that line. <laughs> <laughs> right at the time of this podcast, it's 2019. So. For for people who are referencing that those movies, um, but that from what I read, I haven't seen that one, the Ridley Scott adaptation from. But he supposedly grounded it more like this is the real life sort of more you know historic figure, and then there are all these myths built around those sort of happenings and around the historic event. That's I think Ridley Scott's take on it. You know what I mean? Mm. Mm. I haven't seen it, so I don't know. But uh, that's what I, I hear. I know, same. <laughs> yeah, like on my end, the only Robin Hood uh, character I've seen is just the Disney film <laughs> yeah. where he's the fox, and that's how I know of Robin Hood besides that the, like, the first regular legend. I, saw, and I loved mm. it too. I love that version. Uh, Wikipedia says the earliest known uh, ballads of Robin Hood are from the 15th century. Wow, yeah. And, and are not related to King Richard at all. Right. So over time it is again Correct. become I'm sure down the road it's that's that's what I was thinking of as putting some context into like who this Robin Hood figure is 
and and then take it back to the movie of like you know how Douglas Fairbanks incorporated some of those uh, sort of story ideas or story some myth- mythologizing of this character of this mythology into his film. It, it, you know what I mean? Hmm. Was kind of the track I was thinking. So if you know a lot about this Robin Hood context, I was I was thinking of was you know how far back it went and certainly you know through the one of the first crusade ages right looks like or second or third there's been multiple crusades over the mm-hmm. years mm-hmm. but yeah yeah wikipedia also mentions that he's been portrayed in in film by by like 30 actors oh yeah i mean you know at this point yeah this is current point in time but back then it must have only been the first if not the second or something's got to be it's probably the first film of Robin Hood. Yeah, Maybe. I, think. I, I feel like in the 19-teens, there's been a huge amount of works that has been done before. Like, mm. um, you know, Peter short Pan. Films. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was their film back then, even though it was short. That's what they call it. You know, there was no um, two-hour features <laughs> back in those right. days. It's 19-teens. Right. We call it a short they called it a film. That was their film. Yeah, even though it was like four or five minutes long, it's still that's what it was back then for them. Yeah, this was a two-hour feature, which actually surprised me. It's yeah, I know. Same. Eleven reeler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was kind of long for a silent film. Yes. Yes. But it does cover a lot of um, ground. Yeah, it seems to, at least for the first half, it seems to be focused sort of on the court, the sort of the right. monarchical sort of politics, yeah. as it were. Mm. And well, you asked the question yep. about our favorite scenes. Go ahead. Um, it's, it's funny that I have... Different scenes hit me in different ways, obviously. But I think that the initial scene where he becomes Robin Hood, he's like a jester. And it's very comical seeing him run off into the forest, jumping with his arms out like <laughs> <laughs> like he's going to fly. Like, yeah. whoop, leaping, leaping, you know? And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that actually made me laugh out loud. Um I guess that's probably, you know, the scene that strikes me the most. Um, I love the scene where the first scene where they show him in the window, silhouetted with the light behind. Oh, yeah. Because it's so classic. Right. That's about Mm. it, really. How about you, Lily? I know. I'm trying to think. I had. I didn't. I don't know if I had favorite scenes, but a lot hit me in different ways too. Um, probably for the technical aspect. Probably my favorite part, filming wise, was when he's looking at the man who would become Little John, and you know they're looking back at each other. Mm-hmm. And from Douglas Fairbanks' perspective, it you know it's blurry, and then it racks focus on him, and just mm. you know the idea we do that so easily now, but you know back then who who knows how long it took to perfect. Yep. So I I thought that was the most unique shot for me in this movie because it did seem different. It mm. wasn't the standard like old pan over here or pan up or down. 
Right. And actually, now that we're talking about that, there really wasn't many unique uses of the camera in this film after seeing, you know, um, Battleship Potemkin and even last week's film, too. Yeah, the general. Yeah, it was just because we took kind of a step back after watching a slightly older, I mean, yes, no, this is an older film, slightly newer films. (laughs) (laughs) Only three years difference. Yeah, but but you can tell. It's just like, wow, you know? Right. The the motion, the film quality and motion of the general was far superior. I was Mm -hmm. amazed. Like, when I started watching this movie, the motion of the soldiers walking and everything, it's kind of almost a little choppy. Like, it was like, Almost in a comical way, like bump, 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 you know, yeah. like faster than normal walking. And uh, I said, "Well, now we're back to silent films as I'm used to seeing them." Because after seeing the general, I was like, "This is this doesn't look like a silent film." You right. Know? Mm. Well, it also has to do with um, a lot of sort of technology evolution, certainly. Exactly, but in because... three years' time. Oh I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, in the first you know twenty, thirty years of film history they they've done so much just incredible evolutions and uh one of the biggest things is the frame rate so right a big chunk of silent film even this one must have been the difference yeah it's probably around average of 18 frames per second nowadays um 24 yeah so that's like it started to standardize late 20s i would say it was still kind of wonky back then but around that time is when they're like um, when sound came in, sound dictated the frame rate because mm-hmm. at at a steady, constant frame rate, that's where you can lay the audio track. No kidding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, think about it. If you're printing audio, because before that, the only way to do audio, um, synchronize audio with film is to have a separate uh, sort of disc, right. like a vinyl disc mm-hmm. or something. And so they would play the vinyl disc. And the picture at the same time, and that's how exactly. you get the synchronized sound on playback, right? Exactly. So it's got to be in sync. Right. So, but with the talkies, as it were, post the jazz singer and all those works, New York, New York. There's a there's a bunch of works where they did technology work on it, and they were basically mm-hmm. like, uh, I think it was, uh, I'm not I'm very fuzzy on the history, but there's a bunch of uh, the 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 tech uh, resolution of this is that. We're going to print the audio track, magnetic track, sort of like tape, right? The A track or the audio tape mm. that we know, at least today, the the ancient version of that. We're going to print the audio track magnet- magnetically on the side of the film. Exactly. Like between There's the sprockets. bar right on the film, right? Exactly. And so in order to do that, we need to have a steady uh, frame rate. And if you don't have a steady frame rate, you're going to have the audio going and then chipmunk, you know, like, like really fast or slow. Right. It's very interesting that you mentioned this because I, I used to lace up films um, and run the projectors at a movie theater. Hmm. So, so you know, this her first hand then (laughs) I do, but I, I wasn't quite understanding you at first, but yes, they actually have the mechanism that, literally slides each frame into place click 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 and it actually it actually doesn't the soundtrack moves in a different part from the frame from the film this i just figured out from what you were saying Uh, the the soundtrack is on the film 
but as the film goes across the projector, the light, it has to stop momentarily right. so that you get the flash. Right. So the sound isn't, isn't sent there. The sound is sent in another part of the film that's running through nice and smooth, gradual. Right. So one part of the film is, is, is uh, clicking for it, and one part is moving like a, like a record player. Right. Hmm. Very interesting. And certainly, uh, it's interesting because even there's actually a modern equivalent of that uh, disc technology prior to the talkies. When in the theaters, I don't know if you actually got your hands on it, but when they did uh, DTS, DTS came up with uh, CDs of the soundtracks. No, that was after my time. Right. So what happened was the audio wasn't on the print except for backup. So the only reason they put some Dolby Digital stereo tracks on the film negative itself is only if the the the, the digital uh, CD copies failed for some for a reason, and sometimes they did. <laughs> And oh. if they did, it would fall back. Like there's a uh, software in the projection system to say, look, if our uh, DTS CD soundtracks fail, please fall back to the stereo. Wow. And so yeah. that, like Jurassic That's... Park, for example, uses uses DTS surround no sound. Kidding. All right, we'll get into that track a little bit. So let's pull it back. Yeah. Let's pull it back, <laughs> back to into Robin Hood. Yeah. Robin Hood, 1922. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I didn't have any specific scenes but i feel like there's certain shots to me that encapsulates kind of the character but also douglas fairbanks is like when he was robin hood um and one of his uh cohorts or whatever uh threw a, a log or wood or something in the air and uh, one of his guys like shot an arrow in there it's right. like a it's almost like the shotgun what do you call that uh shots I forgot what the name is. Shot oh, put, like, um, po- yeah, pole vaulting? Shot put, pigeons. yeah. <laughs> yeah, any number of those. And it was, like, with Arrow instead, right? So I was like, oh, that's really fascinating. And then, of course, Douglas Fairbanks is like, well, look at me. I'm going to do <laughs> two. <laughs> two arrows in the, in the you know, in the wood and the lumber, right? So that's, I think, to me, that image perfectly encapsulates this entire movie. In the sense that this is kind of his uh, take. But, you know, if you look at the long trajectory of his career, I mean, it's very common with him. He's very athletic. He's very he's got this like charisma on the screen of like daring do daring do (laughs) of like Mm -hmm. can do attitude. Right. So he'll he tends to play those characters. And that's why if you look at this past uh, filmography, it's like Zorro. Right. Mask yep. of Zorro, any mm. number of the Zorro movies, he popularized stuff like that. Yep. Uh, Son of the Sheik, and this, of course, Robin Hood, and yeah. the Three Musketeers. Like it's all this like very hurt, like his physicality is yeah, great. athleticism, and also running, just running charisma. Running along the tree branch and leaping from the wall to the vines. Yes, climbing, all that. Yeah, absolutely. Any number of those things, and I feel like. In some ways, this was kind of our current equivalent of the... I mean, right now we're looking at the Marvel as kind of the beyond <laughs> franchise mm-hmm, stuff mm-hmm. now. But it's it's great entertainment, right? We you go in there and we, we don't always expect things. And sometimes it'll surprise us, right? Movie-wise and, and kinds of... It's just mass entertainment. And I think this is the perfect... He's kind of... You know, Douglas Fairbanks pictures are kind of the quintessential... Uh, popcorn flick of its day if i had to say that mm-hmm. like you go in you know you're gonna be entertained like a marvel picture you don't always expect 
you know, like the deep stuff. Sometimes they he slips it in there. But it's like you go in there, you get entertained, you get your money's worth, and you check out. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's so funny. I was eating popcorn watching this. <laughs> well, exactly. That's perfect, right? That's perfect. That's, that's, that's what you wanted you to do. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine being in a movie theater in the 1920s when film was new. And I, I would just be enthralled by what he was doing. Yes. That's the that's the key. Is it's incredibly... Uh, uh, is this... Go to ahead. bring the fantasy to life. Yes, yes. To see, to see someone like a comic book hero. He, exactly. He was <laughs> yeah, like a super, exactly. Yeah, he was like a superhero. Yep, yeah. of its day. You know, that's what I'm trying to relate to. Is uh, for 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 people who are who who you know don't have any idea who he is yet. He is kind of that of that era and time. Of it amazed comics. me that in the first shots, when very comically, you know, the king was trying to find him a woman and oh, all yeah. she was saying all women surround him trap him you know it's like very <laughs> very funny and he was so shy and everything yeah. and it was like and they they had him in his outfit his arms were covered right and his form didn't seem really muscular athletic right from the way they did it in the initial scenes until he became robin hood right and then he looked and then he had the you know the the uh, the vest and his arms were bare, and you could see how muscular he was. Right. And then all of a sudden, I was like, "Oh, now he looks like Robin Hood." <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Before that, he didn't. Right, yeah. it's, it's almost a superhero transformation. Pretty right? much, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It was. I thought that was really interesting because I was like, when I first started watching it, I said, "He doesn't look really athletic." <laughs> But it's just, it's the way he carries himself, I think, is that when you look at, uh, is it's him in every movie, but even like in this movie, like when, and also I'm, I'm sure a lot has to do with the frame rate too, the transition between 18 frames and 24 and how that translates. But hmm. in general, it's just the way that, um, to me, he's light on his foot. Like he's hmm. just always, it's almost like he's not, his feet's not touching the ground. Mm. It's almost like it's flying all the time, and the way he mounts the horse, and off he goes. It's super fast, and of course, it mm. probably has to do with the frame rate. It's, it looks really weird, I think. Right, but, like the joust mm. scene in the beginning. Yeah, it, well, all the all the horse scenes. If you look, pay attention. It's like they it, take they off, jump, like, and they like it's it's in with like, a puff of smoke behind. Yeah, them. exactly. It's mm. in a few milliseconds. It's like if you have you ever ridden a horse? I have. It's it's not like no. it's not like that at all in real life. It's like <laughs> they don't want to listen to you. It's like you have to like you know. It's like it's not like instantaneous the way they're they're making it out to be. But uh, rabbit. Yeah, it's almost like a cartoon thing, you know. So, yeah. but it, 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 the very beginning there was a quote from I looked it up. It was uh, Charles Kingsley, who was kind of like this minister or something some something some religious figure of that time there's a really interesting quote slow fleet the works of men back to their earth again ancient and holy things fade like a dream and he's apparently had many quotes i think in time and it's interesting to see douglas fairbanks use that to mean something i don't know what he was trying to say except to 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 be like there's some sort of message of that I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> I just want to touch upon that a little bit because I think it's uh, relevant, you know, if it's something that 
is 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 put at the very beginning of the main title. You know, it's supposed to represent the whole movie. You know, hmm. if they're they're putting it important, he did, but they didn't even cite the person, Charles Kingsley. They're just like, here's the quote, <laughs> assuming <laughs> you know who he is, and it's one of those context things. You know, would he have been very well known at the time? Maybe, maybe I don't know. I didn't I didn't get that far in the research. But I feel like this this would have been something that they would have picked up on, you know, pop culture wise, maybe. Hmm. I'm, I'm looking at the poster for the movie and I actually I, I even like the poster. It looks like something I want to have on my wall. Oh, yeah. Everything about it. The aesthetics, you know, is uh, is pretty amazing. So one of the behind the scenes that was interesting was that at least supposedly, maybe this is just fake Hollywood lore. I mean, Lynn and I was talking about this beforehand before we recorded, but like sometimes history is written up to puff up the media to to make it look like it's better than it was or something like that. Mm-hmm. But supposedly the director, Dallin, Alan Dwan, which is one of the greatest silent film directors of our time, but he, uh, I don't know about greater, but he's at least done a lot of work. <laughs> it's got mm-hmm. his hands in a lot of the, mm-hmm. the works in there. But um, he uh, he constructed uh, with instructions from Douglas Fairbanks this castle. It was this. I did. I tried to find the physical size, but I couldn't. But it just on the screen it looks massive, like tremendous. And mm. like the rumor is that the Douglas Fairbanks saw that and was like, "Oh, I can't do this movie. It's too big. Like literally, mm. physically, it's too big." You know. Mm. And they convinced him to. To, to do it but um they he, like he, were, he was gonna scrap the movie because of wow. that it was so huge that he wasn't gonna be able to do it but if you Maybe look that's at that's why the budget was so high oh absolutely <laughs> i thought just, it was a real place i figured it must yeah, have been like it, they built it and it was like this massive wow. castle with landings with the what do you call that the bridge yeah the it was massive bridge, if yeah. you look at the person compared to the you know man size when he was climbing it, it's massive, right? Right. And and it's it's like full size, of course. One thing that I really wanted to see, and I and I didn't do it in the beginning of the film when the the courts was uh, um, gathering around the the jousting contest thing, when they were exiting, right? Everybody was going to the jousting um, scene, mm. right? I really wanted them to do an overhead pan to see how mm. massive it was. I really wanted to see that but it <laughs> didn't give me that shot the reason why i it, it looks so big is there was a scene where one of the knights was walking from where the king was all the way to the to the must have been the entrance or exit it took him forever to walk you know <laughs> but it, it looks so huge you know the castle was huge the 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 front sort of cheering section and and the cast like how many people did they hire? It's got hundreds at least. That's right? something I was impressed about too. It just now that you know, I see all these movies, I'm amazed by how many extras they needed. If they were even called extras then, but there was hundreds. Mm-hmm. It was massive. And when you looked at this, even for now, I mean, it's a little bit silly. I think people look 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 at the melodrama, which this is certainly one of them. People like they dismiss that a little bit because of that. They'll get like get too wrapped up into the melodrama situation but i think if you look past that a little bit and you look at the massive amounts of set built the costume per person like when the maidens were coming out to you know approach uh 
Huntington, like every one of them had costumes that were so detailedly like, you know, right. supplied. Like it wasn't just like an afterthought. You know what I mean? Right. Yep. And so like it was like they'd literally spare no expenses. Everything on this was huge. Mm. You know? And it was it was like a, a big epic, you know, of that time. So and that's what I was that was my impression with opening shots and and a little bit funny to me I don't know but like when little John and uh, King Lionheart they were in the I don't know what you call it like the seating when they're set, when they're sat down looking at the contest so little John has, has this falcon or bird I think it was a falcon because they use it later on and it then, was Prince John Prince John right but it was little John I think it's isn't it called little John no. no, Little John was a different, a different character? character. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm getting all the characters mixed up. Little John was the blonde guy that was, ah. a, was one of his companions. Right, right, right. So the uh, the brother Prince John, he had this pet falcon, right? Mm. And it was on the the throne, I guess. Next to next it was to the on throne. his arm. On his arm. Now King Lion, he was eating some turkey leg. <laughs> exactly. It was this interesting contrast of like I'm eating a some sort of burn me and then you've got this live bird like looking at it. it's like <laughs> what are you doing you're eating some bird creature a, a subtle a subtle comedy a little subtle comedy in there yeah but even though you think this is like a silly what we think nowadays i think sometimes with our cynical eyes like oh it's just like you know it's silly melodrama from the early days of film it's actually quite deep if, if you think about scenes like that every little thing is being thought of right yeah. Even though he's just eating something, and even though there's a falcon in somebody's arm, it has symbolism in there. It's like it's mm-hmm. it's point it's painting a picture of their relationship mm-hmm. between the brothers, right? Yeah. And so that's the that's the type of thing that I look for in movies like this. Is like, yes, it could be if you if you don't think about the context of the film, if you don't think about the story, you it it'd be easy to miss. But if mm. you if you pay attention a little bit closer, I think it's like wow, it's like even that little bit, it's on purpose. It wasn't mm. just like, you know, glossed over. Right. So, hey, it's also interesting. You you brought up the two characters, uh, King Richard and uh, Little John, and uh, one of the things that struck me about this film was that those two characters in particular are played by Wallace Berry. For the, plays the king, right? And he is the uncle of Noah Barry, who was a very popular actor. You might know him as uh, the father on the Rockford Files, mm. but he's had a long career of many other roles. And uh, Little John was played by Alan Hale, who is Alan J- Hale Jr.'s father. He was the skipper on Gilligan's Island. Oh wow. So the it's it's very interesting to see that their generation before, you know, the '60s actors who carried on, you know, their pre- their previous generation. Yeah, I thought that was re- very interesting. Well, it's the I same looked, with. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, <laughs> I, I was looking. I, I as soon as I saw the opening credits and I saw the names, I was like, oh wow. I wonder if they're related. And sure enough, I did the little research and said, oh, they are. Yeah, if they're in, uh, I was going to say in Hollywood, and you see some similar last names, it's very likely they are. It's very, yeah. <laughs> Because, you know, 
like a lot of industries nepotism is very alive yeah. and well <laughs> but sometimes you're like why wouldn't you like if your parents were doing something successful making money and popular whatever and and you wanted to yeah, continue that vein right so yeah. you know i don't think it's i don't think it's i mean it, it happens it's it, sure but i don't think it's a lot high percentage actually well, higher than a lot of fields of, of uh, work, I would say. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's my point too. But, in, but in, right, but in yeah. but in point, I think that the number of fair families like um, like the Barrymores who go like three generations is 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 fairly rare. I mean, you can name them because they stand out. But when you when you consider how many actors there are on film in Hollywood, I don't think it's a high percentage. Well, maybe nowadays things are spread out more, but yeah. it, it may have been the case in the early earlier days because uh, they figured if you've got experience, they might as well just start using you. You know, if you grew mm-hmm. up in an environment and you're familiar with how things work. Yep. Um, and a lot of the time, the children don't even have to be able to act very well. That's right. <laughs> well, you you can actually tell because uh, Douglas Fairbanks and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Right, right, right then and there is is a one generation thing, and you're like, if you if you just simply compare the two, there's no comparison. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's not terrible, but he he's certainly his son, right? Douglas right. Jr. He's not like the same as his dad. You know what I mean? Right. Exactly. By any shape way she'll perform so no he, he was living on on the coattails yeah he inherited it yep literally right with the dna <laughs> <laughs> but uh, i mean that was to me that was the opening shots of uh the movie and then uh from there it just continues i think to progress in uh i think he really liked that that sort of you know Again, going back to the monarchical sort of societal sort of system, he really liked that. So he stayed almost, you know, a third of the movie was like that. Towards the half was all mm-hmm. about that sort of uh, court intrigue, you know, king and queen and prince and you know that all that intrigue. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think it was very close to the halfway mark when then they were in the uh, the. Uh, and then he, yeah, he was in there, and then the the Prince John wreaked havoc at the uh, the uh, the is it Nottingham town or city or yes. something castle scenes. And uh, what do you think of how that scene played out of him sort of uh, wreaking havoc and? I thought it was done very well. Torturing people it, and yeah, I thought it was. Um, I think it was done well. I mean, I think it, it showed it pretty pretty well. He was bleeding the people dry. I thought that the the Lady Marion's is it nurse some some friend of hers, right? I forgot what what her character was of doing, but I just thought she was her maid. You maid know what something? I mean? Yeah, she's so she got Marian tortured. And she was tortured, and that reminded me a lot, of course, of right Haxan and mm. and Joan of Arc. They seem to like. Very similar shots. <laughs> Every time they do the somebody being tortured and and crying scenes, it's very interesting. It would be very fascinating take if somebody actually collected all those scenes and 
compare them. <laughs> no, it, it, think about it. You know, like uh, it's sort of like the um, the great uh, masterpieces in the Renaissance paintings or something like that. And sometimes they painted the same things because we're commissioning the same things, right? Like right. like the paintings of Jesus, and and then people have done analysis of like, well, they all look, they're all very similar in some ways. It's so I mean, even they're all different artists. Sometimes they'll paint the same angles. You know what I mean? They didn't have to, mm. but they all sometimes just end up in the same angles. <laughs> mm. So sometimes it'd be an analysis of like, you know, why these you know four or five painters did did this and did that. So it'd be interesting to see somebody could do that for all these silent film uh, sort of works that display where people are being tortured and they have these scenes of being tortured <laughs> mm. it'd be interesting uh, thesis for somebody i think kind of gruesome a little bit a little bit but um it'll be interesting analysis of how they could do it differently or not you know comparisons but moving on um i think after that was how how was the transition from that to robin hood can you guys kind of, sort of connect the dots it was a little bit confusing for me because it was he was in jail rotting right and his i guess is little john his right hand man or yeah. somebody else little john and he so he rescues him right essentially out of the jail where they were left to rot right mm-hmm. and and then what happens after that you know connect the dots they escape and i think think they just go to try to find Marion because they're going back to England uh, from her note that she sent them. But I don't think they realize that the note never made it because right. uh, the hawk and the dove scene where right. you know it got it got caught out of the sky. Right. And actually, now that you mention it, I, they just end up there. They're looking for her, and then they go to the place where she supposedly fell into the ravine and died right and then there's the bystander who overheard the fake out of like she was she's dead so she communicated mm-hmm. to him that she's dead right mm-hmm. the the lady marion character mm-hmm. and then what happened after that do they all of a sudden become robin hood i was a little bit hazy yeah, what happens after that they they mentioned in the intertitle card how you know he's uh, you know, he's basically just going to try to win back England for her. Yeah, they not, said they know. said he they said he he set upon getting revenge, which I thought was very interesting. But the, the, the term is he's going to bring revenge on Prince John. Oh, I see. Because and then it's right. So right. And then they show him with the sword swearing his oath to God, King, and Marion. <laughs> Interesting. Mm, chivalry. <laughs> yep. But then what happens after that, though? Is it just the scenes of, like, all the people getting arrows and the notes and stuff? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, but they, didn't, they don't show him transitioning into Robin, do they? No, well, no they the, mention the tra- a year has passed, and okay. then all of a sudden, Robin Hood. There's this, you know, this guy. It's like, oh, all right. Robin Hood. So I, 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 I was like, and I thought I, that it was actually a very clever transition, as you said, as you right. pointed out, that they they do that, and then they start showing the arrows. So they don't leave, they don't show him initially, but just that he's out there and he's terrorizing the okay. terrors. 
So it's it's sort of the effects of this character, not necessarily sort of. It's the just... building of his legend. Right. Okay. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, I it was. Uh, I had to watch it a few times, and I still couldn't wrap my brains around the the transition, you know. And but I think I must have missed something about the year. <laughs> I felt like he had a. I felt like he had a massive change of personality at at that point in the oh, film yeah. too. Oh yeah. He went from being the knight and thinking about Marin all the time, but to to then once he once he said, "Well, now I'm going to have revenge." He became manic. Yes, <laughs> he almost like went off the deep end a little crazy there, and that's when he started to like leap about. <laughs> yeah. Which I thought was pretty cool, actually. He became this. Uh, well, I think it was cool <laughs> that they showed a difference in personality based on body language. Yes, yes. Hmm. Part of it, part of it is like I'm, um, I'm wondering if that's just sort of the action character Douglas Fairbanks mode taking over, versus when he was in the more subdued night mode i guess if that makes sense i have a feeling i'm not sure if you're saying that that was um just part of his acting style or whether that was written in and i i get the strong feeling that it was it was very intentionally written in oh yeah i'm sure it's intentional it's just uh he seems to have the same sort of uh energy when he's playing these uh types of characters as it were doesn't he have that sort of energy mm. in most of his roles? Though? Oh, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm yeah. saying. So he's just kind of when he is when he's full Robin Hood mode, he's calling upon those same right. characteristics, which obviously made him popular because he didn't do those leaps as the knight, like you were saying. He did it right. as Robin Hood, right? So exactly. Yeah. Well, that makes more sense. It's just uh, it was just a more uh, subtle transition, I think, that than I was expecting. I was expecting more of the the brash heroic entrance. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, mm, here's Robin Hood, da, 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 you know, to, yeah. and then all of a sudden he's doing all these things. I'm actually yeah. thinking of the other Robin Hood movie, Adventures of Robin Hood in the 30s. Right. Who was Errol Flynn? Errol Flynn's. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Because that, that's that's I was like. That's the that's the Robin Hood I was thinking of. Like Errol Flynn is the epitome of Robin Hood in most people's minds. Exactly, Inclu- including mine. <laughs> right? I was like, yeah, I, I, you were thinking like you know this brash you know the you know character comes up blasting through and then he's doing all this stuff, but like you said, they they took a different route with this. How would you compare the two between that Robin Hood and this Robin Hood? Because they're not contemporaries, but very close. I like both. I mean, I like the Errol Flynn better, yeah. but but this one is is very enjoyable as well. When I compare them, I mean, obviously you have um, black and white. Was it in black and white? It feels like it was in black and white. Robin Hood. Yeah, this one. 
the yeah. 1922 one, the Douglas, yeah, it's, it's just black and white. It, it, is, it is tinted. White. It is tinted in in. It's tinted, but spots. it is black and white, right? Correct. Yeah, it is. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all of a sudden, I was thinking about you said, "How do you compare the two? And I'm like, "It is black and white." Yes, yeah, black and white versus color, and um, I think both actors did a great job, right, with the characters. But I like Errol Flynn um, as Robin Hood more. Yeah, they brought their own interpretation to the characters for sure. Very Shakespearean in some ways. Oh, absolutely. So, in terms of like, you can take the same story and put your own spin on it, as as it were. When I say that, yeah, Shakespearean. Uh, yeah. So, um, after that scene was, did does he discover? Does he un, does he eventually discover the nunnery thing, or is that much later? I can't remember. It's not a whole lot later. Yeah, the fifteen minutes after it becomes Robin Hood, maybe right. maybe twenty at the most. Yeah, and then I he think, goes off, and he she gets up that, and she he goes. Yeah, because it's not that long after. between the time he starts robbing the the robbers, right. the the officials, and they go and loot the the monastery, um, and they hear about it almost immediately, and they take it right back, literally within three minutes. They so take the loot back and they return it. So there was a, something else that I missed, I think, during this time. What happened to this king? Is it Richard? King Richard? What happened to him? Yeah, what happened during during when all of this was happening? Well, he, he turns well, up like later, all of a sudden. Out of right, nowhere. Well, while that was happening, Gisborne tried to assassinate him in his tent, but ah, okay. killed the jester instead. All right. Oh, so, that's who he killed. Okay, yeah. Oh. yeah. It's a little okay. bit hazy. <laughs> <laughs> he killed. He killed his court jester because the court jester was always. Remember earlier in the film, the court jester sat on his throne when he yes. was out of the throne room. Yes, 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 yes. King. Well, he, mm. he was. He slept in his bed, but that was that wasn't revealed to the audience. They wanted the surprise, which uh, I thought they did very well. Yeah. So Gisborne comes in and stabs him, mm. and I'm sitting there like, did he actually kill the king? And I said, like, yeah. that, that's not part of the story. No, no, <laughs> yeah, okay, so that. See that's that those couple of pieces there were the most confusing yeah. part of the middle was to me when Robin Hood you know became Robin Hood, that to me it was just was all sudden to me and then the thing was the 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 king which came out of nowhere it seems like to me hmm. but that, now that you said that it makes sense so so so, so the gesture is one that got knocked off and then. King Richard kind of hit himself I guess and then kind of reveal himself later right exactly in the background okay cool. The king knew two things um, very cleverly. Um, right. One was he, he recognized the dagger and knew it was Gisborne. Ah. And the second thing was that when the messenger told him that there was a, a bandit knight plaguing Prince John in his efforts, he quickly surmised that it was... Uh, um, Hunting them. Yeah, hunting them. Yeah. Wow. Well, clearly you uh, paid attention to it more than I did. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's like a few of these details flew over my head. <laughs> well, cool. Well, that finally makes sense now that you mentioned that, and that makes the latter parts makes more sense. It's all the pieces. Yeah, what was very interesting to me was that the king up and said, "Well, we are returning to England." Like. They should have noted that the Crusades were coming to an end. Maybe they were in one of the dialogue panels that I missed. But, you know, I mean, I don't think the king is going to... Well, then again, it is his kingdom, and it is being looted five ways from Sunday 
by his brother. So, right. But now I think we have to discuss sort of the finale piece, which I think is the most entertaining. Not okay. that this, the, the previous wasn't in terms of the action packed nature of the scenes. Right. Like when oh, yeah. when, you know, first thing is like, you know, Robin Hood doing everything he's doing, like the thing you were talking about, leaping, jumping, just all of his athletic stuff, you know, jumping across the bridge. You didn't think he was going to make it. He climbs the the bridge itself. He would jump over some, you know, uh, chasm into a side of a castle, <laughs> hangs on somehow. Yeah, I that, was that was intense. possible. You know, any of the, any and number of those things. That scene is stunning. <laughs> yes. Any and number of those. And uh, I rewatched that a few times too. Cause I also wasn't sure if it was superimposed, you know, just they, cause the way the lighting changed on him, I was like, wait, is he actually on the castle? I would, uh, it was, it was very good shot, but I was very baffled too. <laughs> well, I'm sure there's some sort of you know safety harness, uh, special effects going on, but they want you to think that this is pretty dangerous. You know, that's the whole point. It's part of the entertainment. That's his. Uh, that's the whole Douglas Fairbanks thing. It's very similar to Buster Keaton in some respects, in terms of stunts. Like he really wants to show that it's him. Uh, as much as possible, doing the actual real stunts, and mm. I feel like oh, yeah, it makes sense. And I feel like even though I've seen this, like the uh, the, the tail end of this, or I'm, I've seen this one by the way many years ago, but it's been a long time. But I forgot like the ending part here. But this is not the most athletic that he's been. If all his other movies, like Zorro especially, mm. he goes from like from the tree branch to the second floor building stuff. All the time, like that. That was his mo. But um, but they're both very much like you got to do the special effect in camera, and you got to show them it's you doing it, or else it's like not real. There's a little bit like a machismo thing going. <laughs> so hmm. so yeah. But the, the sword ending... fight was crazy. I oh mean, yeah, the sword fight. I love the sword fight. But the ending. It almost reminds me of a, a Bond movie. Oh yeah. In that, in that, like, he could have had his men just kill him, but then he has to do the monologue kind of thing, and yeah, he has to like tie him to the beam and get ready to kill him, and then of course the king returns. The return of the king, right? Yep. <laughs> 1922. <laughs> you know i gotta say as far as robin hood movies go i really dislike the um kevin costner one. Oh yeah prince of thieves yeah, yeah which i had such high hopes for because at the time i first heard about it i liked kevin costner and but as i've said robin hood's one of my favorite characters so when the movie came out and his accent was like all over the place yeah and, um and Will Scarlet was like his brother. And I was like, what are they doing to this story? But anyway, I got to say that in that movie, I love the ending when King Richard returns and it's, <laughs> and it's Sean Connery. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I got to say, I, I like that. Of course it is, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's very 90s. Yeah. It's a, Sorry. That was a little distraction, but. As far as Robin Hood movies go, that's it's kind of a dated movie nowadays. But 
I like this one way better. <laughs> yeah. This one yeah. was a very traditional telling. But before this... Sorry, Lily. But before this, there wasn't any version of this like this. Was there? Right. Not that I know of. So I think this is kind of a blueprint, even for the Arrow Flynn version, many years after, to take off of, you know? Oh, absolutely. They all build no up upon each it. other. They all build upon each other. Once you make one, it's like, oh, this is the way it should be. Same thing with the Peter Pan. Once right. those works came out, it's like once you've established something, like it, this is it for, for all the adaptations moving forward. You mm. know what I mean? Like Dracula, like we were just talking about, Nosferatu, Dracula, and all those things. Like before Nosferatu, they didn't have those, you know, what we know now, the conventions. But after, they certainly... You know, put that in there for sure. So, pretty cool. But I gotta say that the the uh, manic uh, sword fights were were crazy. Like he's done that in more than one movie, but he would sword fight until the swords break. (laughs) That's like like a superhero. (laughs) You know, he go around, he break all the swords. You would hold, you know, ten men back, right? Fifty right. men. Like that's that's the, that that whole scene is like the Superman, right? He comes in and he wins the day. Yep. That's exactly right. All right, with, Lily. With with me, Marion on the balcony yelling. Oh, of course, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> any other any other uh, thoughts? I was thinking, you know, you would ask to be getting to what our favorite scenes were. And now that we are at the end, I probably one thing that stood out to me the most, too, is, you know, is from Richard to John, uh, you know, when he leaves him outside and the drawbridge is coming up. I was like, that's the most polite way to kick someone out. <laughs> it's, like, See ya. Yeah, it's his brother, I think. Right. I, yeah. 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 And also just the way he just stood there and then slowly became like sad his whole posture changed into this sad figure. yeah shame because you know yeah. he knew he was in big trouble because i'm sure if any of the other outlaws are out there he's dead <laughs> was also he was uh his brother so much bigger than he is to lift him up wholesale yeah yeah well. oh yeah <laughs> that was like, funny. my whole foot a foot you know, i think a literal foot you know yeah so that's got yeah. a comedic bit in there too yep Mm. It was. It was. It was. Um, it was kind of funny the way they, the way he picked him up with one hand <laughs> and carried him out. <laughs> but but I think the they kept having this bit. I think in the whole movie it was when the king screams out Huntington like all the time, right? Find people, find where he is, right? Right. And I think that yeah. yeah, and the, I think the payoff. Is you know of course post wedding they're like in their bed chambers <laughs> and he's like hunting down he just keeps pounding on the door <laughs> what do you think they're gonna do in there <laughs> like hello <laughs> I, I I do have to chime in that the sets were really well done too when they extend they gotta have some sort of composition where they extend the set like the crusades and all the different uh, structures, I guess the castles or ruined castles or something mm. w- w- when it's off in the distance. And even the, the last scene 
when they're in the uh, chambers they, after they got married, there's like a, a set something, and then there's a moon. Like all those background、mm. sets that you don't really think of as important, I think all of it adds to the movie of the、yeah. mythic nature and quality of the story that they're trying to tell. Yep. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's not a perfect movie by any means, but it's pretty well entertaining. Like if you're just, again, you know, a popcorn movie and this、yep. came out in a certain. Weekend or time or weekday, and you're like, let's go check out the latest Douglas Fair because at that point in time, he was su- supremely popular. Yep. And so、mm. he probably paid, you know, he probably played towards his strengths, you know, as the adventurer character person. Kind of a, in some ways, character actor. You know, he played this one type of character, the adventurer, you know. Yeah, Now it even he... said, you know. Sorry, I was just gonna say it said it was the first to get a large Hollywood release at the time because of this film. I'm, I'm sure、mm-hmm. it had to do with, you know, same thing as popularity in the Grauman's Egyptian Theater. Oh yeah,、mm-hmm. it's, it's the first movie to have an actual premiere in Hollywood. No kidding. Yeah, at least that's what Wikipedia says. <laughs> it's true,、mm-hmm. but supposedly that's what it is.、Mm. But you've seen a lot of the, the other、uh, Douglas Fairbank works, uh, either of you?、Uh, no, not really. Not that the I、first? know of. This is the first、uh, for you guys. I think so. I have seen another. I've seen at least one or two other movies with him. I just don't remember what they are, but I know I have. The, It would probably come back to me. Thief, Thief of the Baghdad, or the The Thief of Baghdad, definitely. Or, or Son of the. Oh, that's that's Valentino. That's mixing. The Thief、up. of Baghdad is Valentino. You're right. Yeah. No. So the the Thief of no、Baghdad、the Sheik is, is Valentino. Yeah, the Sheik is Valentino, and the Thief of Baghdad is Douglas Fairbanks. That's what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> It's all mixed up. <clears throat> but um, but yeah. So the the, so all of his works, uh, I've seen a big chunk of them. I would say, and uh. This movie comes towards not at the end, but towards the end, not the absolute end. I I gotta say it's probably the height. That's why they gave him so much money. It's probably the height of his career at this point,、mm. um, because he started with you know like I was saying the Lamb, and then he made many many romantic comedies I think, and then he started to play towards his strength with the whole、uh, athleticism thing. Right.、And、How early was the Lamb? Nineteen fifteen. Oh, okay. That's when、mm. he started his in film career, but he's been acting since it was nineteen oh five, nineteen hundreds. He was doing that for a long time, but、um, but the number of pictures, most of which is probably lost,、um, and but his big sort of, well, maybe not big, but the the Mark of Zorro in nineteen twenty, like that's where people were like, wow, you know, or. Uh, the uh, Musketeer movie,、uh, I think it's called Modern Musketeer, in 1917. When he did that, that was also something that was like anything that was displaying his athleticism and his sort of、uh, stunt stunt work. I guess that would、mm. be the ones where people take notice of him. So, so Mark of Zorro was the big one. He really Not just trailblaze, but he created it, the entire Zorro language, if it were, for the whole mythology. He really laid the whole thing out for even all of the Zorros after that.、Um, mm. Three Musketeer, nineteen twenty-one. Robin Hood. This is nineteen twenty-two. A couple years later was、uh, Thief Baghdad, Baghdad, and he did a sequel, 
but it's, I think it's got gotta have more than one sequel. But then he did um, Son of Zorro. And then uh, his big one was after this. There was a a movie called The Black Pirate. It's the first quote yeah, unquote color movie. I think movie. I've seen that one. Yeah, it's the first color movie ever. I think because it's the two strip Technicolor, not the three strip. The three strip Technicolor would come later in the 30s and 40s. But this is 1926, the first two strip color movie, which means that you can only do two primary colors. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much mm. and you would kind of mickey mouse it's it was kind of like black and white pastel ish color <laughs> right it's got a strange look to it it's the first color movie with two strip uh, technicolor which went on for a number of years i don't know what, how long I, I don't know you gotta look that but the, afterwards then the three strip technicolor took over and then the rest is history but um but yeah so you know you got that and then iron mask and uh, a bunch of other movies before, you know, hmm. he died in 1939, heart attack and stuff like that. But that's uh, kind of his trajectory. Is that yeah. what happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, that's why did he have a longer career? <laughs> well, people die at a certain point in time. Yeah. <laughs> so, mm. But yeah, so that's his kind of uh, career trajectory. But certainly his... Uh, you know, beyond just his uh, f- film career, I mean, beyond the acting part, he what he also was no- most known for is not just Mary, Mary Pickford, but also coming with the United Artists. Right. And of course, the, United Artists is... Uh, the big four. Exactly. So mm-hmm. it was D.W. Griffith, Mary Pickford, Charlie Chaplin himself. I mean, yep. these are like the the largest stars, I think, yep. of that time, in America at least. And they created this uh, studio... You know, ours, which is still kind of known today. If you look at some of the movies, sure. like mm-hmm. James Bond was distributed by, or maybe made by, I can't remember. There was some history with the United Artists, but there's a bunch of movies. If you look at those main title logos, at least in the '90s, I remember there's a bunch of movies. They were still in power, I think, before the the corporation started to buy all these library and rights back and forth. But, but yeah, that's the other claim to fame. Because they they have a business that's run by the artisans themselves, with a lot of help, and not just uh, corporate sort of people. You know what I mean? So that was a unique mm. take on making the business work. But anywho, mm. any other thoughts before we wrap up? What did we think of the original score? I was oh, very right. surprised by that. Was the because we you know I took the link that you sent us. You know, and it's on YouTube, but I was, I don't know, I was just very surprised that was to the original score. And mm. am I right when it says that? It was like, really? It just didn't seem like the type of music I was expecting. Uh, it was a bit jovial. I, at times, but it was just more, I think, because I like looking at the people's comments too who watch it just to see what they think. Someone had mentioned it was kind of synthesized and i guess it was but well i i don't know if you if you have to if you have to think about it like they couldn't record the original 1922 yeah version so what they've had to do is uh either have people use synthesizers slash computers to recreate the scores on a computer and then attach it to the film print as is probably what this guy did 
um, Gillian Anderson, he rearranged it. Um, mm. But the original score composer was Victor Scherzinger. Scherzinger? Yeah, Scherzinger. <laughs> so he, so <laughs> he like wrote that. it, but then it, they probably performed the, uh, you know, live orchestra or something like that. So until somebody spends the money to have a full orchestra and mm. record it, like it's it's one of those like, you know, money things, right? Would oh, Kino course, yeah. or whoever owns the rights to this movie? I don't know if it's in public domain, but like once you are have once you are trying to release the movie, who's going to put up all the money to pay all the musicians and mm. conductors to, mm. even if they physically have the score, just to adapt it? You know what I mean? And that's going to take some time, right? Studio time, and you got to record it, and you got to mix it, and right. you got to get the right, get everybody mm. okay, sign off, and once you sign everything off. Then finally attach that score into this film. <laughs> That's why YouTube has right. a bunch of like sound movies without literally without any scores. Right. It's just not the mm-hmm. way you should watch sound Because not too many people are going to do it for the love of the film and not get paid. Not want. Well, get paid it's for really it. hard. Yeah. It's really really hard. There are ones out there, but it's there's just so much content out there, you yeah. know, in general, but especially mm-hmm. with sound films that they're uncovering and as they're uncovering, even as one as as popular as this, right? This has got to be like one of the biggest classics of all time in terms of silent films. But even that, it's like, that's all they got. They got somebody to resynthesize the original score. That's right. the best they could do. But, mm-hmm. uh, so when I listen to that, I listen to that with that context in mind. Mm. So in my brain, uh, my pigeon brain, <laughs> I try to <laughs> imagine a full orchestra, even if it's synthesized, you know what I mean? Mm. And so when yeah. I do that, it makes more sense there is a theme running through it though that's what is interesting I mean, anytime the uh, King Richard slash sort of the, the good guys as it were the Douglas Fairbank characters and related characters they have a theme you know it's the marching dun 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 and then it's mm. like at the end the finale the, the whole thing kicks in you know so yeah. that was serviceable. Um, could have been done better for sure. <laughs> mm. In terms yeah, of very interesting. It just, I mean, it wasn't all bad, but some parts you're just like doesn't sound quite right. You know, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they had exactly. a bell ring every now and then. And yeah, the bell was interesting too. It was, it was a little distracting to me. That's because it's all synthesized, right? That's the mm. problem. So you get but, what you get. Yeah. But I think if somebody down the road again, if some corporation slash Douglas Fairbanks organization or some some rights holder uh, put some money into this, some budget into this. I think they could do a, a real good uh, performed adaptation of the score, you know? Yeah, and you would think now that we keep talking about United Artists that if they, you know, since they are still around, I don't know how Oh, no, they're not around. Big, no, they're, no they're, they're not. No, I wasn't sure. Yeah, are they no. st- it's not. I thought it was. Well, it is, but it's been folded into so many corporations. It's been bought and purchased so many times. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's what I was wondering. I was like, they're around, but they're not around. No, okay, they, never mind. <laughs> I, I think but they're, they're not their own entity. Huh? No, they're not. They're not autonomous. Mm. Like, like you know, when certainly not the same version. That was that. I gotta imagine that was probably long gone. I'm guessing in the '60s or '70s, probably. Okay, so this is a long time ago. <laughs> I'm guessing. I don't know. <laughs> I'm 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 just looking up right now. So they. I am. I'm 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 reading Wikipedia on it. Right yeah. Now. <laughs> so MGM, I think, acquired them, and due to financial uh, problems, they 
they sold it it's been literally through so many hands mgm acquired samuel goldwyn and 2014 mgm acquired it. yeah it's like you know it's part of it's part of so many different corporations now you know what i mean who knows what rights owns what it's it's just a huge amount of stuff that's mm. um so i said a large majority uh, majority of United Artists post-1952 libraries now owned by NGN, but pre-1952, with a few exceptions, are now either owned by other companies like Turner Entertainment, mm. which is probably one of sad. Kind of makes me sad. Or in public domain. Yeah. I mean, a company created by the four giants of film at the time, it's like... But... Let's see, 1919, 100 years <laughs> since, yep. since the founding of UA. Yeah. Hmm. So anyway. Very, very interesting, once again. I mean, I feel like we'd have to look at the Kevin Brownlow book to see <laughs> more information, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, uh, well, the Brownlow book's more is about the people. It's less about the corporations and business hands. But if you look at the Wikipedia, you'll see kind of where they ended up which is never which is just corporations uh, until you have either the heirs heirs of the those people who really wants to look after the estate like chaplin mm. chaplin's well looked after like uh charaldine charaldine i don't know her name but she's the granddaughter of charlie chaplin she's looking after and her and many other people i'm sure so they're oh. like what's that I just found another very interesting little thing on Wikipedia. I'm very sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. Alan Hale Sr., the father of the skipper on Gilligan's Island, who played Little John, was so uh, popular in his role that he reprised the same role in The Adventures of Robin Hood in 1938. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You'll have to look for him next time you rewatch. No kidding. Yeah. That's funny. That doesn't surprise me probably happens all the time so if you're good at it you just bring you back out and assuming, yep. Yep. assuming your yep. voice isn't a high squeak <laughs> you'll, 16 you'll be fine. years later Whew. yeah again assuming your voice passes the talkies you'll be fine yeah exactly. <laughs> sometimes you're like hey this is my voice <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh no you can't survive you remind me of uh, singing in the rain and... yep yeah <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. Any uh, any more parting thoughts about Robin Hood before we uh, move on, or end, me. conclude rather? I I don't know. Um, I guess just you know, you th- when you think of Robin Hood, even if you don't really know much about it, you think they're full of excitement, and you know, you have you just have the notion it's going to be a tale of wonder and thrill, mm-hmm. and just kind of like mentioning what we were talking about at the beginning. To me, I thought the film was very slow paced at first, mm-hmm. and I had written like you know. I was at the 36 minute mark and I'm just like, I'm still bored. Yeah, you know, I'm waiting yeah. for you know, the sword fights and when is it going to get going? And of course it yeah. eventually did. But you know, I was just like, I don't care about his relationship with maid Marion. Do something. Uh. <laughs> I don't know. But once we were talking about it, cause you had mentioned even the, the brothers, King Richard and little and Prince John, you know, they're, um, you know, their relationship, one has a bird, one's eating a bird. You know, I didn't pick up on that because I was too busy being, like, bored. <laughs> that's, but, you that's, know, 
It, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, that is a uh, one of those things that we talk about. I think all the time here in the uh, podcast is that uh, that's why context is important of how to watch these movies, even uh, because it's hard to watch a movie, you know, it, now almost a hundred hundred plus years ago, you know, almost a hundred years ago for this one, without with our 2019 minds because you know. We're we're more used to fast paced stuff for obvious reasons. Yeah, just in general, right? Just in general, like when we're watching anything now, anything you know, not just the movies, like anything on Netflix, anything on YouTube, whatever. It's it's just yeah. it's just something that we're used to in general. That we're right. like watching something. There's got to be a cut. There's got to be some action. If it's yep. losing our interest, it's it's yeah. It's a Which it's a developed really science. Mm. The pacing of a film has been a developing science as it comes along. Do you want to expand on that? Well, I think that, you know, they've learned over time precisely how long you can go for, go for with dialogue before the audience will be bored. Um, Hitchcock knew this very well. He, he, he knew very well just how to be in the mind of his audience and know all right, we've we've spent enough time doing the plot. We need to throw in a twist to wake everyone up because your mind will go to sleep if you don't throw something at the audience that makes them think, makes the, the story progress in a way that makes them, their eyes open. And I think that what you're talking about is like literally it's, it's like you talk about the experience of directors learning from what came before and this has been a hundred years of progress in learning how to keep an audience's attention which is why today when I see directors that don't know these things it's almost frustrating to see the directors (laughs) I don't want to be mean but who don't know how to direct (laughs) No, they haven't done their research. That's even yeah. it's not being mean. It's like, you know, it's the truth. <laughs> yeah. So uh so yeah, I, I, I agree. It's it's a developing it's literally like a science. People don't think of it like a science, but when you when you've learned this much about filmmaking as a as an industry, not not the individuals, but as an industry, all these things that become standard are all learned through experience of what makes a film popular at the theater and what sells tickets. And back when we're talking in 1922 movie, they don't have that experience yet. Mm. But I think when you talk about being in the first half hour of the film and it's still being setting the storyline and you know, that it's a two hour people are going to be in the seat for two hours in the theater. Um, I think a lot of directors, even then, would have thought, "Okay, we're going to have something else happen." I know. I I don't believe I don't believe Chaplin would make that mistake, right? So, mm-hmm. I, I personally, I didn't feel the same way you did, Lily, mm-hmm. because I was very much because Robin Hood is my favorite. <laughs> stories. Yeah, you love it. <laughs> so, so there you go. I was very engrossed in in the whole story building in the beginning, but I can see why you said that, and I didn't think about that until you said it. Like, 
wow, you're, you're right. It was all just story in the beginning. Yeah, so. and that's why I'm glad you brought that up because yeah. it has a lot to do with how to how to enjoy silent films. And, and for me, when I first watched this, probably more than 20 years ago, many silent films, I probably felt like that. I, I remember distinctly that there were many films that I was just like, oh, this is pretty slow, <laughs> man. Because I grew up, you know, just watching what anybody else watched, which was just mm-hmm. the modern movies. But when you're watching movies like this and like especially the first few uh, those shorts that we watched, they're all even though they were really short. I was thinking those were short, but <laughs> like they they were just just real slow. And and the reason for that is because the pacing and like for example, uh, M Night Shyamalan is perfect example. Of what I'm talking about <laughs> even though he's a director today in 2019. Even if you watch some of his older movies or even modern ones, you, you know who I'm talking about for uh, yeah. Sixth Sense. Uh, oh yeah, uh, split even or glass. Unbreakable's really right? good, right? Mm. And also like, um, were really any of his movies, The Happening, Village, whatever. So a- any number of his movies, he that's what he's striving to do is that he wants to get folks back into not just silent films but movies like this, where he wants to develop the plot and story before there's a payoff at the end. You know, mm. so that's his like. If you watch a movie that is by him and people like him they tend to have that but then like that's how they used to do the movies all the time back in the day of Douglas Fairbanks is they would prepare the story and at at the end there's these some actions in the middle and then there's some payoffs yeah. at the end yeah it's it's one of those sort of context situations where like without building the character of the lady marion the the conflict between the the king and uh, Huntington, and also the different various casts. It, it's in some ways, it's kind of like the Game of Thrones. Did you ever watch that, uh, <laughs> Lily? Uh, I I know all about it. I never yeah. got into it. I've really only seen episode one. <laughs> all right, if you even if you've seen that one, it, you'll get the point. Is it's it is kind of slow if you watch it because yeah. like in the like they'll they'll they're gonna set up all the chess pieces. Like yeah, because there's like Very 10 slowly. main characters, exactly. and then you got this and one, this one, this that one. That essentially one. is what Douglas Fair was trying to go for. Is not full on Game of Thrones, but in a similar mm-hmm. vein, he's trying to set up this court intrigue of what's going on in this monarchy. Why is it like, why is the brother uh, trying to go for this? And yeah. in his drunken state, right? He was trying to be like, this cup, drinking cup for the king is going to be mine. Everything's going to be mine. Yep. And this other guy's like, no, no, no. And then it's like, <laughs> or like, oh, let's, let's get you, you know, let's get you a wife because you're clearly, you know, you need it. Like there's all this intrigue that's happening in the king's court. You know, it's to- interesting that you, yeah. I mean, Dwan is part of it, but, Fairbanks actually wrote it. And oh, yeah, I think sure. that yeah. I think it's great because I think the thing that I enjoyed that where you were getting bored, Lily, is that um, is I, I guess we're going around in circles, but yeah, I I, <laughs> I enjoyed that Fairbanks wanted to tell a thorough story. He wanted he wanted everything included. He wanted to make everything clear, and which is what you're saying too. Right? Is, um, my point is, my point is, he's trying to raise the stake. So once you have all these characters have some stake in it, he's he's laying out the different right. plot lines so that at the end, when you know, when that's why I was trying to clarify some of those threads in the middle. I was asking you guys questions of how he became Robin Hood and how the king 
uh, Richard came back because once you figure out all those lines of plot and the characters, it's the payoff, right? The payoff right. is like the exactly. king shows up, he rescues everyone, Robin, you know, kills all these people, and, and like you know, he gets rid of the bad guys, and you know, the 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 Prince John is ousted, and he's he's no longer prince, he's he's exiled, and, and right. you know, massive changes in, in the plot, right? And the and that's the payoff, and like if you were in the audience. Maybe I'm guessing back then you you would have been cheering at the end because you're like, oh these guys are bad. Now they're they're getting their comeuppance. Great, there's the payoff. Like you're like yeah. out of your receipt. This is the payoff, and that's what I'm thinking of. Like, in it, when I'm putting myself in the context of watching this film as if it was in 1922 and not in right. 2019. Right. Um, and that's hard to do. And honestly, like because of because of all the. The, the time of this podcast, the Thanksgiving 2019, I've been mm-hmm. eating a lot of you know food and, and a lot of food coma. I had to like <laughs> sleep. I literally fell asleep multiple times through this whole movie. Oh, I wow. had to rewatch this. That's why I missed a lot of this, some of those because it's been again both that and I've seen it. You know, last time it was 20 years ago. Is uh, I had to rewind multiple times, and even yeah. every rewind was I kept falling asleep at any yeah. point. <laughs> you know, because the pace is different. You know, right and. And the thing that we've been talking about, the experience of the industry and the development of the industry over time, it almost makes it like for people of this era to criticize a film of that era, we can be very unfair to it. In that we're we're talking about the experience, we, we see it with all the experience for a hundred years after. So if we mm-hmm. criticize it based on that, and you said this in the first podcast I did with you, is that young people will look at silent films and and have a very hard time seeing it through the eyes of of the audience of the time. Right. Yeah. And that's and, and in a way, I feel like some of my criticisms have been have been that have looked at it that criticism of modern day eyes. That that's what I mean by the word context is that. Right if you're able to string and find the context as the gateway into watching these older films. And I think that's true of almost anything that you want to read uh, out of history. So if you're trying to read, you know, the constitution, but you got to figure out the context of the time or the declaration of independence, like you got to look at history from the context of history and not just, through 19, 2019 eyes because if you did some sometimes it's hard like i think i used this example before but like disney plus the new streaming platform from disney has these old 1930s and 40s and 50s cartoons that are just plain out racist and so right. it's like they have this block of words drafted by lawyers saying oh you know when you watch this is be mindful this is horribly racist it's not representative of disney today <laughs> So yeah. be careful as you venture into this realm. And it's like, well, it, you know, I'm, I'm, but like, that's, that's all history. It, it right. almost, it, it should be like, it goes without saying all the time. You should, you should have that fine print, everything for everything mm-hmm. that you view when you're reading history or experiencing something out of history. You know what I mean? Exactly. Makes it should sense. go without saying, you might say. Because you will like read works in the past that with, people who are terribly 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 racist it's just like well it's just you know that's how you have to experience history it's just that's how they did it <laughs> and he that's how we still do it now and so if, if we did it now in 2019 and people look at us in history uh even 20 years from now in 20 
don't even know what that is. 2039, whatever. And we're like, yeah. yeah, and you're like, oh, wow, 2019, you know, Trump was kind of a racist, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> you know I don't know. I'm making things up now. But the, you, you get my point. You got to have some oh, sort yeah, of historic too. precedence, context. And then once you have that, you kind of have to, you know, uh, read out of it what you need to get out of it rather than read into it. Because yeah. when you read into it from a 2019 perspective context, it's uh, it can be a challenge. Mm-hmm. Having said that, and I did fall asleep many times. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say, it is good to be reminded about the context, though. Because, you know, I, it's like when I was watching... Oh, jeez. Uh, uh, I am blanking. The the Klansman, the one by oh, uh, D.W. Birth Griffith. of a Nation. Thank you, Birth Great of a Nation. I, I was able to get into that movie, but this one I just couldn't. You know what I mean? It's just weird. Different movies bounce around. Mm. And that one was older. But I, I think it all just depends. I don't know. No excuses. No, I, I, think, <laughs> I, think, you're, I think you're onto something because... It might have to do with the way it was made. And that's the thing I was most fascinated about. Another thing about this movie was like, it, somehow the way this was made, uh, it, it it's not as dynamic in terms of the film language, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I can see that. Whereas even The Birth of the Nation, that was at least you know five, six, seven years before this, or longer, I think. Uh, it was very dynamically made, and that's why mm-hmm. it got the attention it got, as well as like some of the other movies we've seen, like Hexen or the certainly Nosferatu, highly, highly dynamic movies, right? With different camera angles and very interesting, right. just very interesting takes on on different things, and and that's why I even said in the beginning I wished uh, that they did a high angle shot. Of how how familiar mm-hmm. are you with Alan Dwan? I'm not. Yeah, I know he's uh, one of the sort of the well-known guys oh, okay. in the wonder, film era. But okay, I wondered. I asked that because I wondered if might Douglas style. Fairbanks might have yeah. made a mistake in, in picking that director. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. He might just be a guy for hire. He'd be like, let's <laughs> do this, let's do that, and get it done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I think... I think there's always and and it might be a tension between Doug Sirfin and various different directors. Even if the directors want to do something, he may be like, "Make this shot so I can look good." You know what I mean? Cause, yeah. Because he wants to show you how he can jump from the 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 bridge that's closing on the on the castle. <laughs> so, mm. but anyways, so and remember the lines were blurred back then, right? There was no like I am the director, even though you you are a right. name. It's always like mm. yeah, More maybe a communal product. Yeah, everything everybody pitches in, doing everything. So the twenties is when they started to start moving towards the the segregated roles, but not not right away. I think they're slowly transitioning in time. Any other thoughts? That was a good point, Lily. Yay. Yep. <laughs> that was a really good one. Uh, no, I can't think of anything else. Nope. Um, that's the end of my brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I thought it was uh, a, a, a decent, serviceable Douglas Fairbank vehicle. Um, 
I don't think he's, it is his best, um, but the, the actual Robin Hood sets and bridge and the characterizations are really good and well done. I think, like we were just talking about, the film language could have been more dynamic if it was possible. Maybe it was limited by maybe Douglas himself or maybe other people for whatever reason. Um, but other than that, uh, well worth checking out, if you're, especially if you're a big Robin Hood fan the character and the myth and the story and yep. you want to see it, this take on it and this iteration certainly uh, set the precedence for many many Robin Hoods um, years after this film came out so that is our take today on Robin Hood and um, thank you again thank you uh, Lily and thank you Bob for uh, spending a huge amount of time <laughs> watching this movie and <laughs> doing some research into it and uh, I thank you listeners for uh, being with us on this journey, for listening to us. And uh, we'll uh, be back here on the same time, same channel, same place. How does that old saying go? Same time, same bat channel, same <laughs> bat place. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. So same we'll, bat time, yep. same bat channel. Yep. So <laughs> we'll sign off with, uh, you'll find our social stuff and uh, past recording archives at watchingsilentfilms.wordpress.com. Again, that's watchingsilentfilmsplural.wordpress.com. And we'll talk to you again um, weeks later. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye.